it truly is good to be back with you after this short absence. And because it's been a while since we began this study of Luke chapter 3, I'd like to take the first few moments of our time today to remind us of some of the things that we've been learning in this passage. First, may we take note that these precious words that I'll read for us in a moment, well, all through these scriptures, these precious words are an ever-present reminder that God is constantly revealing himself to us through these scriptures. And that may sound a little odd for me to say, but folks, I find that too often most of us Christians most of us born-again believers, we do not read this Bible to find out about God. We pick it up and we search through it to find out things for us. We don't look within the scriptures to find out who he is, what his plans are for us. We want to instead find out how his words can comfort us, can guide us, can in some way instruct and benefit us. And that's all right. The Bible does do that, and it's good. But that is not the first purpose of our Bible. The words of our scripture are first and foremost intended to reveal the holy and loving God to us, our creator, our God, our savior, to reveal his person, to reveal his plans, to reveal his purposes to us. So as you pick up your Bible the next time, don't be reaching in there to find some application first. Application is good, but do that secondarily. Open that Bible to learn about who God is. And you know what? In the process of finding out who he is, he'll be answering our questions as to how he can comfort us and instruct us and direct us. Now, here in these first few verses of Luke chapter 3, the prophet John the Baptist is revealing one of the very special mysteries of who God is. Here he's giving us one of the first real glimpses into the Holy Trinity of God. And we will see just within these, these verses and the next few verses that follow, we'll see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But here as John was preaching, you'll recall that the people who were listening, his words were so powerful and so demanding that they mistakenly began to think that he might be the Messiah. And they ask him, are you the Messiah? He quickly responded to them, no, no, I'm not the Messiah. He says in verse 16 of chapter 3, I indeed will baptize you with water. And as he gives this comparison that's beyond any other comparison, he says, I'm only going to baptize you with water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Such a difference in the baptisms. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, his winnowing fan, and by the way, this word his is now he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Let me read those words again. One is coming whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so then the next his is the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and he'll gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. Now for John the Baptist, recall, 
This was the whole reason for God to bring him into this world some 700 years prior to this moment in time. Isaiah had said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That was John the Baptist. That was who Isaiah was prophesying about. He was one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, a messenger, a messenger giving the first proclamation of the kingdom of God had truly come to earth. As we've said, John was introducing for the first time the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus. Listen to the words again. I want you to write these on your heart. I'm going to say them three or four times. I indeed baptize you with water. John is saying this. I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then also, along with this introduction of the Lord Jesus, John was revealing God in another way, introducing another person, a third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Those words again, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You know, you and I, in this New Testament age, when we read words such as these about the Holy Spirit, they're common to us because we've been hearing them preached and reading them in our scriptures. But that was not so for the people of that day. Yes, the Holy Spirit had already been on the earth for all the millennia since creation. And yes, the Holy Spirit had been active in, in people's hearts, especially in the prophets. But these words about the Holy Spirit, they were strange to the ears of the people who were listening in that day. These people knew so very little about the Holy Spirit and His role in their daily lives. And we can know that as we read the Old Testament. We will not find where there was much teaching at all about the Holy Spirit. But now, with the coming of the Lord Jesus, all of that was changing. The Holy Spirit would now join in with the mission and the work of salvation that the Lord Jesus was bringing to the people. And the Holy Spirit would then carry that salvation that Jesus would give to these people on into eternity. Beginning with the preparatory work that he had already begun, convicting people of sin and righteousness and judgment. That was why those people were there that day. But beginning with that conviction that they needed to be there to be cleansed, the Holy Spirit would be that ongoing agent of God to draw the unbelieving souls to the Lord Jesus for His blessed salvation. Now may I say here again that it was never God's plan from the beginning for just one member of the Trinity to be involved in the salvation of mankind. You know, we sing... Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And those songs are really wonderful, and that, and that is true. But let me say in very strong words, it was never God's plan for only one person to be involved in our salvation. It was ever and always the ministry of all three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as we can see in the crowds that were gathered that day with John, God's broader plan was already at work. That's why those people were there that day. They were there to 
see John the Baptist and listen to him, but they were also there to see the Lord Jesus because he's going to arrive on the scene in just minutes after this has taken place. And so with that then, as I said in earlier messages, we know that those people were not there that day as some have preached simply because of their free will. No, that's not how it works. Or perhaps because they were curious. Now, they might have thought that to be the case from their own viewpoint, but they were mysteriously drawn there to hear John's message and then to witness Jesus being baptized. God's involved in all of that. We have to see his unseen hand. It's all through these scriptures, and he talks about it as he's doing here. Now, all those people who were drawn to John the Baptist and to the Lord Jesus, would they turn their hearts to Jesus and be saved? Would all of them? No, they wouldn't, unfortunately. But just as with so many who come to churches today, a lot of folks are sitting in church pews today, and they are not saved, and they'll not be saved. And that is so sad. So then why does God want to bring them there? Though he knows they'll not accept him. It's so that they could hear the message. And we're told in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, so that on that day of judgment, they will be without excuse. They were given the opportunity, and they're without excuse. And again, as we've studied in an earlier message, we see that here how the Holy Spirit is joined with the Lord Jesus to bring and carry forward God's plan of salvation on into sanctification. That next step after salvation. Listen to these words. He, the Lord Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. May I remind us again that God is telling us plainly within these words that our relationship with the Holy Spirit is not always gentle and euphoric. Too often, he is presented as being that. Yes, he is that. Yes, the Holy Spirit is our comforter. Yes, he brings with him love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. But the Holy Spirit is absolutely holy. And one of his first and most important responsibilities is to bring that holiness and that righteousness into each of our souls. And that's when he convicts us of our sins and convicts us of the need for his righteousness. And that's when his unquenchable fire, spoken about here, will surely do its work and begin to cleanse us from our sins. That's why those people were there that day. They knew they needed to be cleansed from their sins. As we've said also in an earlier message, that cleansing fire will often be very painful, especially for those sins that we want to hold on to. Do you have sins that you want to keep? You may not think that they're sins, but God wants us to examine our hearts. He tells us that, examine yourselves to see if you are in Christ. And as, then as his winnowing fan, his winnowing fork begins to do its work, it starts to be painful to us because we're going to give up something that we don't want to give up. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into his barn, but the chaff, the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. I love this 
word picture that God gives to us here. It's both a promise and it's also a very stern warning that he intends to cleanse our hearts and our minds and our souls from our old sinful habits and our inclinations. And that unquenchable fire that he speaks about here, it will singe, it will burn, and it will scorch every fiber of our being. It will utterly destroy all that sinful ground that remains within us. And folks, that's going to be painful. But it's good. It's good when the Lord does that. But now, I do want to remind us of that being said. As we suffer through the cleansing of our souls, you and I need to keep clear in our minds that God is our dear, loving Father. And He is ever faithful to preserve us and to restore us back to a spiritual health like we've never known before. A blessed condition, cleansed from our sins, and now filled with His presence. What a wonderful occasion that is in our lives. And folks, nowhere can that sort of suffering be seen in these scriptures than in the manner that God used when he dealt with his old servant Job. If you've ever read the book of Job, you'll know that Job spent a lot of time and a lot of suffering on God's threshing floor. But then, as you read on further, Job chapter 42, Job was restored to a better condition than he had ever known before. And folks, please know that the cleansing is absolutely essential to all that God wants to begin to do within your and my soul. It is his way of preparing you and me to be trustworthy children who are then able then to carry forward his plans and his purposes. So then, for those of us who have Christ as our Savior and our Lord, according to these scriptures, changes will truly begin to take place within our souls. We read all about that, studied all about that in the book of James. He said, you will change. You will do works of righteousness. And if those aren't taking place, then you need to go back again and see what your relationship with the Lord is. Changes will begin to take place within our souls. Our hearts and our personalities will begin to really change. And it'll be noticeable. Not only to us, it'll especially be noticeable to those that love us and want us to do better. But a question, what should and what will those changes feel like personally? Can we actually feel the presence of the Holy Spirit within us as he fills us and as he baptizes us with his holy fire and as his holy fire then begins to burn up that chaff within us, all those old habits and behaviors? The answer to that question is yes, definitely. We may not recognize the feeling as what we would think would be the feeling we ought to have with the Holy Spirit. Because we're told so often by preachers that it's a euphoric feeling. But not always. Not always. Sometimes, as the Holy Spirit fills us, the feeling that we'll have might be guilt. Guilt for things that we have said or done. Guilt or remorse. Sometimes it's sorrow and grief because of lost opportunities that we've let slip away from us. You can't count the number of times that I've had that feeling. I walk away from a conversation and say, I really wish I'd have done better. 
Sometimes it's sorrow because of things we know we have to give up, that we must give up. I can recall in my first days of surrendering my heart to Christ, knowing that I was going to have to give up the closeness of one of my best friendships. He was my drinking buddy. He was the one I went fishing with on Sunday morning, right at this time on Sunday morning. And I knew that had to change. But that's all he knew. But I was different. I was beginning to change. Sometimes we'll notice that we aren't as angry as we used to be. I've told you that for much of my younger life especially, I've been an angry man, easily flaring up into fits of anger. How many times do you do that? And there are other ways of feeling the work and the pressure of the Holy Spirit taking place within us. We may not recognize it as being the Holy Spirit, but then we look back later and we can then see that it was Him. It was Him causing those changes to take place. Another question that often comes to our minds, as God fills our heart and our soul with the Holy Spirit, is it all His doing or do we? Do you, do I, have some part in that filling of the Holy Spirit? We know that salvation is in every way a gift from God. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so there's nothing that we actually can do to gain our salvation. But what about the filling of the Holy Spirit? Do you and I have a part in that? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, we do have a part in our being filled with the Holy Spirit, at least to some measure. We know that because He commands us to do that. He commands us in Ephesians chapter 5 to be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know that when God commands us to do something, then He expects us to take part in obeying that command. Now I confess to you that I don't know much about how I'm supposed to do that. But I do know that I must give all that I am in obedience to Christ. He tells us in John chapter 14, he says, He that has my commands and keeps them, he it is that loves me. The keeping of God's commands. I'm supposed to be obedient to him. Comments that I have read from some trustworthy Bible scholars suggest that to be filled with the Holy Spirit implies giving the Holy Spirit real freedom to occupy every part of our lives, intentionally inviting him to guide and to direct our paths. Do you do that? Do you just sit down face to face with the Lord and say, I want you to direct my path in this circumstance or that circumstance? Folks, I have done that a lot of times over the years. And it's when we do that, that his power will be able to be exerted through us so that then we can be fruitful, bear the fruit that he wants us to bear. And the filling of the Holy Spirit really does not apply only to our outward behaviors. It equally applies to the innermost thoughts and motives of our hearts. Because folks, that's where everything begins. You remember again in our study from the book of James that sin begins as a thought back here and it works its way out into our bad behavior. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not just our outward behavior, but it begins and lives within the application to our most inmost thoughts and motives of our hearts. And simply praying, by the way, simply praying and asking God to fill us with His Holy Spirit, that does not seem to accomplish all that He wants to accomplish. We must do that, yes. 
We must pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But it truly seems that obedience, active and intentional obedience, is our most important response, especially when we want to do something else, when we intentionally obey what we know God wants us to do. It's then that God is best able to do his work in and through us in any circumstance. And each time that we find ourselves falling back into those sinful behaviors, I mentioned these in another message, perhaps watching one of those lewd and lascivious programs on TV with all of their vulgar and profane language. How many times have we made excuses when we recommend a movie to someone and say, oh, it only had a few cuss words in it. It only had two bad scenes. Make an excuse so that we can hang on to that sort of thing. God doesn't want us to do that. Also, those times that we get caught up in anger, you and I must, in obedience, immediately and intentionally turn away Confess those sins to God. Repent of them. And then renew that surrender that we have to Him and our commitment to being Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. One last consideration. This command tells us to be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, as I've attempted to rationalize those words, I simply have been confounded. And preachers have preached many messages just on that one verse and that one question. The question is this, if we are already filled with the Holy Spirit when we receive Christ as our Savior, and we are, how can we be any more filled with the Holy Spirit? So the answer to that question may in some way be, we can, by our behaviors, limit and restrain the manifest presence, His very presence and His power and His effectual working within us. We can even grieve Him. But to the degree that you and I will allow the Holy Spirit full access and control to all that we are, to all that we think and all that we say and do, that's the degree to which His fullness is able to become more full within us. Perhaps it's as simple as those words, a little commitment accomplishes very little. But a greater commitment accomplishes greater things. But to be sure... To be sure, it's dependent to some measure upon us, you and me, and upon our active, obedient surrender of ourselves into his hands. Do you want to do that? Do you want to do that? Let me repeat what I've just said quickly, because I want us to understand this with a, with a certainty. God commands you and me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when God gives us a command, it means that you and I have a responsibility for the doing of that command. And here it's to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And these words are clear. They're plain. You and I must do our part with an intentional obedience. You and I must join with God's Holy Spirit in His filling of our spirit with His Spirit. To say it another way, much of the sanctification that God brings into our soul, it's a joint effort. It's a joint effort between him and us. Him giving us the power and the strength and the will to do it and then our working it out in the practical matters of our day. And he tells us that in Philippians 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, you, me, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will so he gives us the will to will and to do his good pleasure. God is telling us 
that it is first his hand that reaches into our life and provokes us towards doing the things that he wants us to do. And he'll give us both the will and the ability to do his will. So you and I are without excuse. But unless you and I are willing to get on up and get about doing his will, then we're going to just languish, falling short of his plan for us, saying over and over again, why did I do that? Or why didn't I do that thing that I should have done? So then, you and I need to begin this very moment diligently seeking how we can be filled with his Holy Spirit. One final thought. The Bible scholar Martin Lloyd-Jones contends that if we diligently dedicate ourselves to the pursuit of being filled with the Holy Spirit, then our pursuit will invite an additional special presence of God's Holy Spirit, that the Lord Jesus himself will often pour out, will pour out his Holy Spirit upon us, giving us a measure of God's presence such as you and I have never known before. That in those special moments when no amount of human effort can accomplish a need or a task, Jesus will pour out his Holy Spirit upon us, giving us all that we need to do whatever it is that's needed at the moment. For some, that might be an exceptional thought or wording in a conversation with someone, especially a conversation that might lead that person to Christ. But at other times, it might be exceptional knowledge and ability for just a matter of daily life, one that you're not able to handle otherwise. For me, I believe that Jesus does that regularly as I prepare these messages and as I give them to you each Sunday. How do I know that? How do I know that? It's because, folks, I know that I am not at all smart enough on my own to think these thoughts or to say these words. I know that. I know that it is the Holy Spirit. So praise the Lord for that. So then, in whatever manner the Holy Spirit decides to do His work in us, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or through being filled with the Holy Spirit, or through the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us. Praise be to God for it. Let's pray.